Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Find hidden clues and uncover a murder mystery. Solve mind-teasing mysteries of the Roaring Twenties. Engage your sense of observation to find hidden clues. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and uncover a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve. We're all here because we love true crime, right? Well, this game has the perfect twists and turns to keep your brain asking, what happened here? There's nothing I love more than getting to decorate my very own luxurious state island. The best part? You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of Dana Chisholm, who was 25 years old when she was murdered on February 26, 1995, in Washington, D.C. 17 hours before her body was found, her family received a call from someone pretending to be a cop. He said Dana was in jail, but it was a lie. She had not been arrested and he was not who he said he was. When Dana didn't show up for work on the 27th, her job asked her landlord to check on her, and when she did, she found Dana dead. She had been strangled. 28 years later, the person who killed Dana has never been found. Who killed Dana? And why? This is Dana's story. Before we get into this week's episode, I know everyone who listens doesn't follow us on social media, so I wanted to make sure that I told you about Black Girl Gone Afterthoughts. Starting this Thursday, we are introducing a new bonus episode every week, where I, along with my husband Jason, discuss the episode from the week. If you've ever listened to the show and wanted to know what I really thought or What else I found out about the case that maybe I didn't include in the story? Well, now you have afterthoughts. To be clear, we won't be gossiping or accusing people of crimes, but we will dive deeper into some of the details of the story unscripted. Don't worry, you won't have to subscribe to another show. The episodes will drop right in your feed on Thursday mornings. The story we are telling this week happened almost 28 years ago, but the person responsible for Dana's murder has never been found. Dana was born on August 30th, 1969. Her parents, Johnny and Joe Gary, raised her and her two siblings in Rock Hill, South Carolina. As a child, her uncle said Dana loved to read. She would read anything that she could get her hands on, and he described her as curious about the world. He told the Washington Post, quote, 
she was a bright girl, and she always liked doing adult things. As a teen, she attended Northwestern High School in Rock Hill, where she was a cheerleader and a member of the homecoming court. She also sang on the school's chorus. Her dad said that she sounded just like Whitney Houston. Singing was her passion, and ultimately, she wanted to sing for a living. Those who knew Dana said that she was intelligent and talented. She had grown up in a middle-class neighborhood and was raised in a good home with both her mom and her dad. However, during her teenage years, Dana began acting out and, according to her family, experimented with drugs and even ran away. Eventually, however, Dana got it together and she graduated high school in 1987. After she graduated, Dana moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where she attended King's College and majored in business. After some tough times during her teen years, Dana's relationship with her parents got better, and in 1993, she graduated from college. Getting her degree was really just a backup plan because Dana really wanted to be a singer. She had big dreams, and she really wanted to live a more exciting life. The first step in finding that new life and career was moving out of Rock Hill. And so a few months after she graduated from college, Dana moved to Washington, D.C. It was a combination of her desire for a more exciting life and her dream of becoming a singer that brought her to the bigger city of D.C., Once there, she moved into a basement apartment in a home in the Crestwood neighborhood. The home was a single-family home that had converted the basement into an apartment. The woman who owned the house lived in the home with her teenage son. The neighborhood itself was upscale. The former FBI director, William Sessions, lived four doors down. Senator Jay Rockefeller owned the property behind the home, and a foreign embassy also owned a home close by, according to the Washington Post. It's not clear what Dana did once she moved to D.C., but in 1994, she landed a job as a secretary at the Hudson Institute, which is a conservative think tank that was located in downtown D.C., Her coworkers there described her as a really nice person who was fun to be around. Her boss later told the Washington Post, quote, she was a bright young woman with such intelligence and a thousand watt smile. But he also said that he could tell that Dana seemed to have something else going on in her life. She would often show up late to work and would be visibly upset. Sometimes she didn't show up at all. And no one knew exactly what was happening in her life, but she was young and had recently moved to D.C., and so she was also making a lot of big adjustments. Neighbors also said that Dana was a nice girl who appeared to be living a quiet life. They would see her coming and going from her apartment, but nothing ever seemed out of the ordinary about her comings and goings. From the outside looking in, Dana's life seemed normal, happy even, but there were things about Dana's life that people didn't know. It's hard to say in this case whether or not the missing information about Dana is because of the age of this case, or if it's because Dana herself had a lot of secrets. There just 
so many things that we don't know. In February 1995, about a week before her murder, Dana confided in a coworker who she had become friends with that she was pregnant. The woman said that that day, Dana was crying. She could tell that she was really upset about something. She then told her later that day that she was pregnant. It's not known if she told her coworker anything else, like who she was pregnant by, but from the coworker's description of Dana's reaction, this was not something that she was happy about, at least not at that moment. She told her coworker that she was planning to go back to South Carolina on February 24th so that she could tell her parents. Her dad, Johnny, told the Washington Post that he spoke to Dana on February 16th. He said that he had called her at work to thank her for a Valentine's Day card that she had sent. A few days later, she called her parents and she told them that she was planning to come home in the next couple of weeks because she had some big news that she wanted to tell them. But Dana never made that trip back home and her parents never spoke to her again. On Friday, February 24th, 1995, Dana was at work at the Hudson Institute. Her co-worker said that she saw Dana around 7 p.m. as they were getting ready to leave work for the weekend. She said that Dana told her that she was going home and was going to be in for the weekend because she wasn't feeling good. She told her that depending on how she felt, she might even call out of work on Monday. The co-worker said that they hugged and Dana kissed her on the cheek. Quote, I hugged her and she kissed me on the cheek and we said, I love you, the co-worker told the Washington Post. Over the weekend, she tried to call Dana to check on her, but she never answered the phone. She told the Washington Post that she did get a little worried when Dana didn't answer, but that she probably assumed that Dana was just resting and so she would see her when she came back to work. When her parents didn't hear from her either, they said that they knew that she had a busy life, and so they figured that's why she hadn't called them. On February 27th, at around 1 a.m., the phone rang at the Chisholm home in Rock Hill. Her dad, Johnny, said that he picked up the phone, and he told the Washington Post that, quote, a man said, is this Mr. Chisholm? Is this Mrs. Chisholm? Your daughter is in jail. This is the Washington, D.C. Police Department. This is Lieutenant Lewis Douglas. Your daughter is one of the women we arrested tonight, and we locked her up. Johnny said that the man on the other end of the phone didn't sound like a cop. He said that his tone did not match the circumstances. He then said to Johnny, quote, She didn't want me to call you at first, but I changed her mind. She was pretty upset but I talked to her. We had a sting operation going at the Omni Hotel, and your daughter was one of the women we arrested for prostitution. She'll be arraigned in the morning. She should be out sometime later tomorrow. Don't worry, she'll call you. He then gave the Chisholms a number to call if they needed anything. The news was upsetting. I mean, imagine getting a call in the middle of the night that your daughter was arrested for prostitution. And on top of that, the person who called you is supposed to be a cop. However, he doesn't sound like he's a cop. 
They were suspicious, but they were more worried about their daughter. A few hours later, they started calling Dana, but she wasn't answering the phone, which, of course, only made them more worried. They decided to call the number that the caller had left to see if they could get any information about where their daughter was. They called, and they asked to speak to Lieutenant Douglas. When Officer Douglas answered the phone, they asked him about their daughter. But Officer Douglas told them that he didn't make that call to them and knew nothing about their daughter being arrested. He also had no idea why the person who called them had left his number. Johnny told Officer Douglas what was going on and how he'd been unable to reach his daughter. Johnny said that the officer then asked him where Dana worked, but he was reluctant to tell him because he didn't want his daughter to get in trouble at work. Officer Douglas asked him, quote, Mr. Chisholm, don't you want me to find your daughter? I'm not going to get her in trouble on her job. So after hanging up with Officer Douglas, her parents decided to call her job themselves and see if maybe she had just gone on to work. But when they called, they said that her boss was rude. He told them that she wasn't there and then hung up on them. Then they decided to call her coworker and friend. And she told them the same thing. Dana wasn't there and she had not called out of work. No one at the Hudson Institute had seen or spoken to Dana since she left work that Friday. The Chisholms were becoming more and more worried about their daughter, especially after finding out that she had not shown up for work and she hadn't called out. They called Officer Douglas back to see if he had been able to find out anything, but when they did, they were told that he had left for the day. He did, however, leave a note on his desk that said that he had gone to Dana's home and left his card at the door and on her car after no one answered. In the hours since her parents received a call from a stranger about their daughter being in jail, they still had not spoken to her, and no one knew where she was. As they waited to hear back from the detective or anyone else, they had no idea the news that awaited them. 48 hours after that mysterious phone call, their world will be turned upside down. I would like to introduce you all to Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. Switching to a custom routine from Pros is one of the best things I've done for my hair, and the results I'm seeing just keep getting better. I've been using Pros for a few weeks now, and I love how much softer and stronger my hair is. Right now, I'm obsessed with the hair oil. It smells amazing and it's doing wonders for my hair. Pros knows there is more to you than just your hair type. Pros has given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how I got started. The quiz was really easy and it asks the right questions. It even asks questions I wasn't expecting like my zip code. But by analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros handpicks clean ingredients that get you closer to your hair goals with every wash. 
My favorite feature of Prose is its review and refine tool, which lets me tweak my formulas for any reason in case I change my address, my hair color, or even my diet. As a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Prose is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral. If you're not 100% positive Prose is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Prose is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to prose.com slash girlgone. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash girlgone for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. In the early morning hours of February 27th, 1995, Dana Chisholm's parents received a call from someone claiming to be a cop. He told them that Dana had been arrested But when they called the number back that was left, they found out that the person they spoke to wasn't who he said he was. And Dana had not been arrested. After they couldn't reach their daughter, they called her job and found out that she wasn't at work and no one had spoken to her. At the time, they had no idea what happened to Dana. But... 48 hours after that call, they would find out the devastating truth. When Dana's parents called her job on the 27th to see if she had been at work, they found out that not only had she not shown up for work, but she hadn't called out either. They were worried, but they were not the only ones. Coworkers and friends of hers were also worried. I get the impression that even though Dana would miss work here and there, she would call out when she wasn't coming. So this behavior was out of the ordinary. Plus, at least one of her coworkers knew her secret. She was pregnant. Later that day, Dana's coworker, the one she had confided in, said that the office manager came to her desk and asked her if she had spoken to Dana, which she hadn't. They then decided to contact the landlady where Dana lived so that she could go and check on Dana. At around 6 p.m., they spoke to the landlady and explained what was going on. And they asked her if she would go and check on Dana. And the landlady agreed. And so she went down to Dana's apartment. When she entered the apartment, it was in shambles. Dana's things were strewn throughout. It was shocking, but as she made her way towards the bedroom, the shock turned to horror. On the floor, naked, lying face up, was Dana. She was dead. She had a cord wrapped around her neck. Dana's landlord immediately called the police to report what she had found. The police began to arrive at the scene shortly after 6 p.m., and they began to process the crime scene at Dana's apartment. It was clear that someone had ransacked the place, but 
there was no sign of forced entry. The first indication that perhaps Dana may have known her killer and had opened the door for them. After canvassing the apartment, they spoke to her landlady, who did not report hearing anything. They also spoke to neighbors, who also did not hear anything suspicious. Now, this was a quiet neighborhood, and considering the condition the apartment was found in, it's strange that no one heard anything. After speaking to several people in the neighborhood, police began to focus their attention back on Dana's apartment. As they began that investigation into Dana's murder, her parents in Rock Hill had no idea what was going on. Officer Douglas never called them back. In fact, they never spoke to him again. 48 hours after they received that strange call from the man posing as Officer Douglas, their phone rang again. Around 1 a.m. on March 1st, the Chisholms received a call from the police dispatcher in Rock Hill. Her dad, Johnny, told the Washington Post that the dispatcher said, quote, there are two officers at your door. Will you let them in? He said that he opened the door and the officers gave him a number for the police in Washington, D.C. This time, when they called, the D.C. police did have information about Dana. And they told them that she had been murdered. The hours before finding out about their daughter's murder must have been terrifying for the Chisholms. There had been so much confusion, and for it to come to this conclusion is just unimaginable. Back in D.C., investigators were learning a lot about Dana from the crime scene. Inside her apartment, police found newspapers with personal ads circled. They also found notes that Dana kept of different men that she had been dating. The notes included their phone numbers and even references to where they worked. The detective working the case said that the men ranged in age and included married businessmen who lived in the suburbs, men she had met in the club or bar, and police officers. Investigators said that Dana both answered and ran ads in the personals. Naturally, once investigators discovered this information, they started to focus on it. If Dana had been meeting men through personal ads in the paper, then maybe she had met the wrong man and he killed her. Now, luckily for them, Dana had included phone numbers in her notes, and so detectives began calling the men on the list. How many men were on the list is unknown, and it's also not known how many of the men on the list police actually spoke to. But none of them were ever identified as suspects or even a person of interest. The coroner had determined that Dana had been dead for about 20 hours when she was found, placing her time of death at 9 p.m. on Sunday, February 26. Once the autopsy was completed, it was confirmed that Dana had died of strangulation. The autopsy also revealed that Dana was, in fact, four weeks pregnant when she was killed. Her parents didn't learn about the pregnancy until after the autopsy was done. When detectives spoke to Dana's parents, 
they told them about the strange phone call from someone pretending to be Officer Douglas. I mean, it was really weird that this person would call her parents and pretend to be a real cop and then give them that cop's real number to call. When her parents had spoken to Officer Douglas, he didn't know how the person would have even gotten his number. But the investigators learned that prior to her murder, Dana had reported that her TV had been stolen. And Officer Douglas was the person handling the case. They believed that the killer found the card in Dana's house after he murdered her. However, that doesn't answer the question why this person would go through all of that. I mean, if he had killed Dana, he had already gotten away because no one had heard or seen anything. And when the call was traced, they learned that it came from a payphone. And so the detectives theorized that the killer and the caller were the same person and that after he killed Dana, he went to a payphone to make that call. Unfortunately, the Metro Police Department would not allow Officer Douglas to be interviewed by the media. And so no one knows what he thinks about all of this. As far as evidence, I don't know if anything else was ever found inside the apartment or on Dana's body. I'm sure that Dana's lifestyle led them to believe that possibly it was the reason she was dead. But as the investigation continued, police never found evidence to lead them to anybody. Now, it's not clear when, but not long after Dana's murder, the lead detective on the case, Detective Farish, began receiving phone calls from someone he didn't know. The first few times the man called, Detective Farish wasn't in the office, and so he left him messages asking for a call back, but he never left a number. A few weeks after the first call, Detective Farish was at his desk when his phone rang. It was the man that had been calling and leaving messages. He told Detective Farish that he knew why Dana was dead, and it was because of her lifestyle. He claimed that it was because she went to clubs and drank and had sex with different men. And he wanted to make sure that Farish told the media that. Farish said that he was, quote, adamant that he told the media these things about Dana. And Farish said that he agreed that he would. But instead, he told the media the opposite about Dana. He hoped that it would make the man call him back. And it did. Over the next two months, Detective Farish spoke to the unidentified man at least three times. And after asking several times, the man finally agreed to meet Farish. And so he went to the place where the man agreed to meet him, and he waited. Three hours went by, but the man never showed up. He also never called Farish again. The last interview the D.C. police did about Dana's case was in 2011. But this case had been cold for years before then. 
And in the years since the interview, there has been no information released about this murder. There is still a $25,000 reward for information, but it's not clear if this case is even still open. After almost 28 years, the person who killed Dana is still free. Dana was a young woman who had moved to D.C. to start a new life. She had made choices in her life that may have made her vulnerable, but she did not deserve to be murdered. The person who called Detective Farish wanted him to tell the media that Dana basically deserved what had happened to her. And if he is the murderer, then he wanted to make sure that the whole world knew these things about her. But Dana was a woman with her whole life ahead of her, and she was pregnant. And whoever killed her needs to be held accountable. Cold cases are solved all the time, and there is a strong possibility that the person who killed Dana can still be found. Dana Chisholm was found dead on February 27th, 1995, in the 3800 block of Argyle Terrace in Washington, D.C. Detectives say that she was murdered around 9 p.m. on February 26th. If you have any information about this murder, please contact the Metropolitan Police Department. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.